We are returning to our sermon series on Acts. We are in chapter 28, the last chapter. Lord willing, we will be finishing up this sermon series that I think has been going on now for, what, close to two years here in the next week or two. Uh, Just by way of orienting yourself, where we left off in chapter 27, Paul and his shipmates had uh, just hit a reef, and uh, the ship was destroyed, and they were floating to shore where we left off. Let's pray, and then we will read chapter 28, verses 1 through 16. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear now the word of God, Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 16. It is written. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune had come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Rigium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putili. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius in three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, here we are in a new year, 
and back to our sermon series on Acts. Now, we had no way of knowing how this year would begin when we made the decision a few months ago to temporarily pause our sermon series before concluding it in order that we could focus on stewardship, Thanksgiving, and the Advent and Christmas seasons. And I'm not sure how it is from your perspective, but it seems that we as a nation have gotten off to a little bit of a shaky start to this new year. We are quickly approaching a fever pitch crisis on our southern border. The economy remains a serious concern. We have a Congress that has been an absolute circus. We're hearing of deep corruption at the highest levels of government with each passing day. The weather has been crazy, including last night. We've been under tornado warnings. On an international level, the war in Ukraine continues to rage, and the news out of countries like Iran is worrisome. And on top of everything else, some of us began the new year with COVID, which doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. Now, if I were a worrying person, there would be a lot to be concerned with. We didn't know any of this would be the case when we made our plans several months ago concerning the sermon series, but what we did know when we decided to pause our series was where Acts was heading. It was heading toward Paul's arrival in Rome, and we have arrived there with Paul this morning, all in God's providential timing for Paul and for us. Think about this reality. Just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus, who was born to obscure parents in an obscure little town, and he was placed in a manger because there wasn't even a suitable place for him to lay his little head. It's not the kind of birth that you would expect would have an impact on anyone outside of his immediate family. It was a humble birth of one born into obscurity. But here we are entering into Rome with Paul just a few decades after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And we need to note this morning that Paul doesn't come slinking into Rome. Rather, he is met with great fanfare. He comes parading into Rome, the capital of all of the Western world, where he was to stand before Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. And Paul is being greeted as he makes his way into the city like he is coming as some sort of conquering general, which is made all the more unusual since he comes as a prisoner. And he comes in this way because of the ways in which history has dramatically shifted by the birth of this baby in Bethlehem. We want to keep all of this in mind this morning as we look at this passage. God has taken the mustard seed and made from it a mighty tree. And all of these things that seem to be working against God's plans, all of these seeming setbacks, all of the obstacles, all of the difficulties, all of the shakiness of the circumstances surrounding the central characters of this story that God is writing, God has turned all of these things to his advantage for the sake of advancing his kingdom purposes and his redemptive work. God is working sovereignly over and above all of these things to work out his plan to save many by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. 
So Pastor John's sermon last Sunday was really perfect setup for where we are today. John noted for us last week how God worked through the nativity story through very unsuspecting means, both through man's will and through supernatural causes to carry out his redemptive plan. It was through a decree carried out from a self-aggrandizing Caesar and through Gentile magicians who had been curiously watching the heavens as they looked for the fulfillment of a prophecy that had been left among their people hundreds of years earlier and who were overjoyed to follow a supernatural cosmic event that played out right before their eyes. And it led them to the one who had been foretold to be the king of kings. And even now here in Acts 28, God is no less directing the course of history despite the seeming setbacks and difficulties. So we pick up now where we left off back in November. Paul and all of his shipmates are floating and swimming to an unknown shore after their ship wrecked along this reef. And this morning we find them on the island of Malta, just off the coast of Italy. And notice that Paul, rather than sulking, rather than moping around, that his journey to Rome has once again been delayed, immediately got to work to make himself useful and make the most of the situation. He began to gather sticks for the fire that had been made for the shipwrecked crew by the islanders, who Luke notes for us here were showing unusual kindness. There's actually something to the adage that when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. We as Christians do not believe in random chance. We don't believe in happenstance. All that we encounter comes under God's divine providence. So sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves is a demonstration of a lack of faith. It's a refusal to be content with what the Lord has given to us. Paul is not one to sit around feeling sorry for himself over his circumstances. And this even includes when it seems true that no good deed goes unpunished. Look at what happens next. As Paul sought to make himself useful, he apparently mistakenly picked up a snake among the sticks. Now, as Southerners who regularly encounter snakes, most of us, are aware of what happens when a cold-blooded snake gets cold. It becomes inactive, right? And most snakes around these parts could easily hide themselves in a pile of sticks. We also know that a snake that is hiding in a pile of sticks will not remain inactive when it is brought near a heat source. I've heard many stories of hunters who unknowingly sat down next to a snake in the woods only to find that snake in their lap as their body heat warmed the snake out of his slumber. And for that very reason, I personally make it a habit to look closely around the area where I sit down in the turkey woods. The last thing I want is a timber rattler sitting in my lap or worse, attached to my thigh. Uh, Paul, though, becomes the victim of a snake warmed from its slumber here on Malta. And Luke tells us that the snake attached itself to Paul's hand. What is even more concerning is that Luke calls this snake a viper, which indicates that this was not just a snake, but a poisonous snake. This is what the word means in the Greek. 
Anyone in here ever have a poisonous snake attach itself to you by its fangs? No one? I know of at least one person in here who's been struck at by a poisonous snake. I have had a water moccasin slither across my bare foot, but I've never had one attach itself to me. This is terrifying. And at this point, it seems like a most unfortunate event. Paul has made it so far. He's almost to Rome, having escaped mobs and beatings and imprisonments and plots against his life and trials. And most recently, he's escaped a terrible storm, starvation, a shipwreck, only to get onto dry land and be bitten by a venomous serpent, which the natives who would have known about this particular snake were sure was going to kill him. And they're all just waiting for him to drop over dead. And they all count this incident to be some sort of divine justice for a man who must have done something terrible to survive a shipwreck only to get bitten by a deadly serpent. They think that he must be a murderer. In their thought world, that is the only logical explanation that gods must be angry with him over something for which the punishment was death. This was divine retribution. One cannot ultimately escape from cosmic justice after all. And and we might scoff at the native seeming superstition at this serpent situation. It might seem naive and primitive here as we read Acts 28. But it is not an uncommon thing in our present day to be to see suffering to be explained as coming as a result of some sort of divine or cosmic consequence to wrongdoing. We, we might hear someone say something like, well, I guess karma finally caught up with him. That's how it gets expressed in the unbelieving world. It is this idea that what goes around comes around. If you are suffering, it might very well be because you have done something to deserve it. Even believers, though, might have the sense that their suffering is the result of some sinful behavior or transgression that they have committed. I've heard Christians say that they believe that their suffering, their illness, their whatever is is a result of some egregious sin in their life. And remember that when they encountered a blind man, that even the disciples asked Jesus who had sinned, this man or his parents, that this man might be found in this condition. The immediate thought for them was that suffering had a one-to-one correlation with sin, but Jesus responded that it was neither. The man's blindness was not a result of sin. And the lesson is that we have to be careful not to too quickly assign suffering to sin. That isn't to say that suffering is never the result of sin or that sin can't cause physical issues in our lives. Think about the opening verses of Psalm 32 where David states, For when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up. As by the heat of summer, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There is a correlation between sin and suffering here. 
It might be that our suffering or the suffering of those around us is a result of sin. It, it could be divine punishment or it could be a means of discipline. Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. We are instructed, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. So we are instructed to endure our suffering for the sake of discipline in these cases, which, as Hebrews says, seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There are times then when our suffering is the result of discipline. But is that what is happening here with Paul? Was he being disciplined by the Lord? No. So we mustn't be too quick to say that our suffering is for this reason or that. Rather, it's important to seek to discern what the Lord is trying to say to us through it. It could be corrective in nature. It could also be constructive. It could be for our edification. Romans 5 says suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This could be the way that God builds us up in faith. Or it could be that it is simply part of the common suffering that occurs in this fallen world. People get sick. Storms come. Economies fall apart. Wars break out. Or it could be, as it was for Job, that we will never know the reason that we are suffering. The reasons are simply hidden from us. So we must seek to discern the cause of our suffering in order that we might respond in faith and obedience. And regardless of the cause and nature of our suffering, it can always be an opportunity to give God glory. As mysterious as it might seem to us, Jesus said that the man had been born blind, that God might be glorified through him. Some suffering might be for that very purpose, in fact. It might not be that it was corrective or constructive or common. It might be that it is a Christ-glorifying suffering that we are called to endure. And so it seems here for Paul, as we will see. But look at Paul's response in verse 5. Excuse me, it's almost comical, right? Uh, Luke tells us Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Luke doesn't indicate any sense of panic from Paul. Paul just shook the snake off into the fire like it was no big deal. And why would Paul panic? God had given Paul a promise that had not yet been fulfilled. Jesus had told Paul that he was going to Rome, and Paul didn't doubt the validity of this promise for one second. No imprisonment, no shipwreck, no snake bite was going to prevent the promises of God from coming to fruition in Paul's life. And what is revealed here, what has constantly been revealed in Paul's life, was these promises had braced Paul for any and all challenges that he might encounter. They braced him for the shipwrecks and the snake bites. They braced him for the attacks of the evil one. 
These things didn't shake Paul because he had trusted in God's promises to him. So Paul didn't panic. And as one commentator noted, justice was not catching up with Paul. Quite the contrary. Providence was preserving him. Paul understood that. And look at what happens next. After waiting for Paul to swell up or die, the natives go from believing Paul to be a murderer to believing that he must be a god. That is the only sense the natives can make out of things after the snake bite didn't have any effect on Paul whatsoever. This is how fickle people can be sometimes. Paul had experienced it before. One second he's loved, the next second people want to stone him. One second he is despised, the next he is venerated. But Paul didn't live to please men. He lived to please the Lord. This sudden change in attitude toward him did open the door for him, though. It gave him an opportunity to minister to those people even further. The very next verse tells us that Paul soon found himself in the presence of Publius, who is described here in verse 7 as the chief man of the island. James Montgomery Boyce noted that this was the exact technical language for the Roman representative on the island. Publius was the chief official of Malta. And certainly Publius would have wanted to meet the one who could shake off a venomous snake bite. Luke tells us that Publius welcomed them, probably not all 276 from the ship, but certainly at least Paul and Luke into his home and offered them hospitality for three days. Again, keep in mind, Paul was a prisoner, a prisoner who is now receiving hospitality from the most powerful and influential person on the island. And it was there that Paul learned of Publius's father who was ill. Now, it's very possible that Publius's father had what became known as Malta fever, which was actually traced in the late 1800s to a, a microorganism, a bacterium that existed in the milk of goats on Malta. A vaccine has now been developed, but then it caused an illness that lasted for months or even for years. But Paul, through prayer and the laying on of hands, miraculously healed this man. Paul was making lemonade out of the leavens he had been dealt. And Paul couldn't help himself but to serve others. This is what serving Christ in his kingdom looks like in the midst of difficult and seemingly unfortunate circumstances. And word probably got around pretty quickly that Paul was a miracle worker and others who were ill were brought to Paul and were also healed, all because of a shipwreck and a snake bite. Now, there is no explicit mention of the gospel being proclaimed there in Malta in what would be the three months while Paul and the others waited for winter to end and so that they could continue their journey to Rome. But I think it's safe to suppose that Paul was taking every opportunity he could to proclaim Christ. After all, miracles usually accompany the word proclaimed as a means to give validity to it. So what began as a shipwreck followed by a snake bite provided an opportunity for three months of miracle-filled ministry. 
It was an opportunity to whine and to complain and to feel sorry for himself, but Paul used it to the glory of God. This all challenges us to consider what sort of setbacks we have experienced, what sort of challenges we are currently wrestling with. I'm sure there are many in this room for you. Is it is it illness or injury? Is it navigating work or a difficult relationship? Is it dealing with the grief of loss? <clears throat> is it just everyday ups and downs? There might be a variety of things that can be seen as setbacks, as disappointments, as trials. It, it might be that this new year has begun with a few new challenges even. And we might see them as unwanted interruptions to the plans that we had, as unneeded disruptions in our lives. But it could be, in fact it is, that God has a purpose for them. This passage challenges us to consider how we view our suffering and how we respond to it. It impresses upon us Paul's steadiness despite the chaos around him. We see him placing faith over fear. We see him demonstrating calm over clamor. He refuses to be shaken by anything, but rather he shakes off adversity while trusting in God's sovereignty. And it is that simple knowing that God is in control, that that God is working all things for good for those who love him, that God is present in leading every step of the way that allows Paul and any of us to move forward with a faithful steadiness despite what might be happening around us and to us. And God is certainly faithful to fulfill his promises. We see that Paul finally does make it to Rome here in Acts 28, ironically sailing to Italy on a ship with Castor and Pollux, the twin gods, as Luke calls him in verse 11, as the figurehead on the ship's bow. They, they were the Greco-Roman gods of navigation and the patrons of seafarers. They were supposed to afford sailors a safe journey. Can you imagine what Paul was doing when he saw this? You can imagine Paul rolling his eyes at this figurehead. He and his shipmates were going to make it to Rome, shipwreck or not, and it would be with no help from the man-made gods of the Greco-Roman world. Paul knew that one didn't need superstitious ideas about luck when you have a sovereign God of the universe on your side. And this rather short journey was without incident. Luke records for us the journey from Syracuse, which is the capital of Sicily, to the toe of Italy, Rigium, and then up the coast where they finally got off the ship at Putilli. And from where they could pretty quickly get on the Appian Way, that famous road that would lead them straight to Rome. And Luke with what James Montgomery Boyce described as a masterful understatement, writes simply in verse 14, and so we came to Rome. And so we came to Rome. 
Luke writes of it with such nonchalance, but this has been, this is a moment that everything has been building towards. It's what Paul had been dreaming about for years. This is a huge moment for Paul, for the advance of God's kingdom, for Christian history. And so we made it to Rome. We're going to get more into that next week, but for now we should simply note that the, these verses describing the journey into Rome might all seem like a rather uninteresting travelogue to us, but what should stand out to, he, to us here, as I've already noted at the beginning of my sermon, was Paul's welcome into Rome. We might imagine Paul was bringing the gospel to Rome, but the reality was it was already there. Remember, Paul had written his letter to the church in Rome during his time in Corinth while on his third missionary journey. So there is already a church in Rome. And this church came out to greet Paul in force. Luke notes that they ended up staying for seven days at Putili, where they were greeted by Christian brothers. And then Luke notes that the Roman Christians heard that Paul was getting close to Rome, and more Christians came and welcomed him at the forum of Appius, 40 miles out. And then more of them at three taverns 30 miles out. This was a tremendous encouragement to Paul, as Luke notes in verse 15. And before we conclude this morning, I just want us to stop and to think about this for a moment. As we've moved through the book of Acts, we've witnessed a Christian community grow from a frightened group of disciples hiding in a closed room in Jerusalem to a community that spans across many cities and nations. It's a community that lives with boldness and love and unity and generosity. This is the community that began growing on the day of Pentecost and of which we were told devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This was a community that was selling their possessions and bringing in their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many had need. It was a community that was day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, who received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. It was the community that had gone out even under persecution and boldly lived and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation in the name of the Lord Jesus. This was a community of the redeemed who had placed faith in Jesus Christ and humbly submitted themselves to him as reigning Lord over their lives. Here is that same community, not the same people. It's a different people shaped by the same spirit at work among them. Thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. This is what the Lord was doing. And this is one of those moments when the Christian community is at its greatest, when it is standing in unity in the Lord to support one another through adversity. Uh, There are times when we feel so alone in our battle through the difficulties of life, but the Christian community stands as a reminder to us that God is with us and that God is for us. And here in Acts 28, we have these fellow believers who had heard that Paul was coming and they had traveled 30 or more miles to come out and greet him and encourage him. Paul comes into Rome in chains like a criminal and the Christian community greets him as a conqueror. Dearly beloved, this is a community 
that we want to be and by God's grace already are. In a world that is so self-absorbed, the Christian community stands as a counterculture, a field with those who place others above themselves, who desire to truly give of themselves and to love one another, understanding that the Lord has first loved them in Jesus Christ. And now more than ever, we need one another. We need to know that there are those around us who support us, who are praying for us, who are pushing us to grow in love and good deeds, who will both hold us accountable concerning our walk with the Lord and will be there to offer grace and forgiveness when we fail, who will walk the narrow path with us and help us to keep our eyes on heavenly things, who will be weird with us in the eyes of a world gone mad. So what a blessing the Lord has given us to have us here in Acts 28 as we begin this new year that is sure to hold many new challenges. God reminds us this morning that he is present, that he has a purpose for us even in the midst of the suffering we are called to endure. And here is scripture's challenge to us as we begin this new year. Place faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in God's sovereign rule. Believe in the promises given in God's infallible and inerrant word. Lean into God's grace, which is sufficient for the day, and be there for one another. God's redemptive plan will march forward despite any seeming setbacks despite any adversity despite any difficulties in fact these are the very things that God plans to use to demonstrate that his power is made perfect in our weakness and that his kingdom is foolishness to those who are proud and fancy themselves to be wise and remember dearly beloved this is the same God who came in the flesh born a humble birth in Bethlehem but whose kingdom would in a very short time expand across the world, gathering for itself people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. May we live as though we believe, as we know that to be true, and may God receive all the glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do Indeed, thank you that on this second Sunday of the new year, Lord, we have a very clear picture in your word of the ways in which you are prospering and preserving your people. You are furthering your redemptive plan in the world. Lord, you are gathering people who will place faith in Jesus Christ, who will be saved, who will become part of the family the church here on earth who will commit themselves to worship you and to follow you. And Lord, I pray that this would strengthen us this day, that it would encourage us this day. Lord, that whatever is going on in our lives right now, that we will know, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things, that you have a plan, that you have a purpose, and that you are working all things for good for those who love you. Give us confidence in that this day. Help us to follow you in faith with a steadiness like Paul. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
in response to the gospel. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe. 